Welcome to Christ and Culture, a podcast about two kingdoms, man's kingdom and God's kingdom, and how they collide. What's up, guys? What's going on? It is Paul. I'm back, man, and I'm glad you guys are listening. And uh, today I got my doc, Dr. Williams, is on here, man. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, doc. What do you uh, what do you uh, uh, do? I know you, you're a doctor at the school, but what exactly what exactly do you do at the school? Yeah, well, thanks, Paul. It's great to be with you. Um, so I'm an associate professor at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I teach Old Testament and Hebrew. Uh, I Old mostly, Testament rocks, man. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's exactly right. Jesus is Bible, but we'll probably talk about that later. Yeah, we will. We will definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mostly teach graduate students, master students, and then doctoral students as well, and supervise some of them in their dissertation writing. Oh, okay. So. Yeah. That's some stuff hopefully I'll be able to do in the future is do some writing on some dissertations and Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. That's the plan, man. I'm going to be a doc like you. Do some Old Testament <laughs> teaching, man. That'd be real cool, man. Absolutely. I, I do actually have one question I did not plan to ask, man, is uh, uh, like classes. I know that sometimes um, you you get to start your own classes or something like that. And I was wondering about that. What is that? What are some like special things that a person could teach? Because I'm asking because I want to teach maybe on like covenants or teach on uh maybe like the theology system systems of theologies that people is that something that that you can do uh when you get your doctorate and, and you, you teach at a school you can just be like hey i want to start this class yes absolutely oh, i mean wow. uh you know it depends on the parameters of the class and and the school that you're at but at southwestern and we've had lots of opportunities to awesome. do things that were more custom fit for a particular topic or a current issue in theology or in Old Testament studies and those kinds of things. So those doors are definitely open. Oh, for sure. That's yeah. dope, man. Yeah, because I found out, seems like recently a lot of people have been turned away from the gospel. I've seen it in the media and on TV and, uh, and, and YouTube and, and Instagram and seen it in my life, you know, people turn away. And I think it's because they don't have a firm grisp, grisp. They don't have a firm grip on uh, the gospel or the mm. unity of scripture. Man. And so, to be honest with you, that's what uh, I'm going to turn to now is, is talk to you about the, the, the question that I have and the reason I brought you on this because a lot of times people don't understand or see the unity between the Testaments. They're like, oh, Testament is, is out. It's, there's no more. It's only the New Testament. Don't you know the New Testament come? Don't you know the New Covenant? You know, and uh, I'm like, no. That's, that's not how it is, man. So one of the questions is, is why do you think it's important for us to study this Old Testament? Man, it's a great question. It's a big question. It is. <laughs> it leaves it wide open. <laughs> it is. But, you know, the way I like to start is to talk about a relationship between, you know, you think of, a, you think of your best friend. And what defines a best friend? Well, there are a few things that are very likely the case. One, probably the most important is that part of your story overlaps with their story, right? Mm -hmm. Like you, you understand you have shared experiences, you have inside jokes, you have little things, mm -hmm. the little stories that you tell, the background that you have. And in many ways, that's what a lot of the Old Testament is. It's the story of God's relationship to humanity and the way in which God especially in the context of the whole world, the way in which he particularly focuses on uh, special people, a small group within all of humanity, and the special relationship that he has with his people. And so the first thing that I say is if you want to know who God is and you want to understand who God is, then you should start by knowing his story. And a lot of that takes place in the Old Testament. So that would be kind of the first big point that I would make. And then uh, beyond that, you know, in terms of the importance of the Old Testament for Christian believer, in thinking about the New Testament, so much of the New Testament can be misconstrued, totally misinterpreted. Oh yeah, for sure. If there's no context in the Old Testament, right? I mean, in many ways, the, the Old Testament kind of grounds a lot of the language of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. um, you know, discussions of flesh and, and the body and resurrection and things like this, um, they take on a certain significance when they're understood within an Old Testament background rather than, let's say, you know, a, a more platonic background or 
Um, one, a background that sees more differentiation between the spiritual and the earthly and sees these not as one, as um, component parts of a single reality, but kind of two things that are in opposition to one another, yeah. right? And, and we see this in the history of the church, that many of the early Christian heresies were a result of understanding the New Testament in ways that were foreign to and outside the the confines, if you will, of the Old Testament in its story, in its point of view, the way it understands God and the relationship yeah. between God and the world. Yeah, I, I was going to say, because when you said platonic, at first I thought... Uh, Oh, so they like each other, but not uh, they don't really like like each other. But you're talking about <laughs> you're talking about Plato, and, yes. and, and, and now it makes a lot more sense because I think that that we read into scriptures some of those philosophical ideas. And so what you're kind of saying is that it's important to see that the writers of the New Testament and their thought and their thinking was deeply grounded and rooted in how they th how they thought, not yes. how Plato thought. Right. And the way that we understand how they thought is by reading the Old Testament. Yes. Um, yeah, and even the gospel itself is, you know, if you think of the gospel in purely individualistic terms, right? Like, it's just me on my own. And there's this kind of church out there, but th those people are really just there to support me. Then there's something kind of impoverishing to that point of view because, you know, God's work with his people doesn't just start in Matthew. It doesn't just start at, even at Pentecost, if you will. Mm -hmm. He's been working the whole time. He's been making promises. He's been, yeah. he, he's been active throughout history and recognizing the way in which Jesus and the gospel, the good news about Jesus, connects into this larger story of God's interaction with Israel, I mean, that's just such a fundamentally important aspect of the Bible um, mm -hmm. and of the gospel itself that to overlook that then just leads into all kinds of areas that are real problems. Yeah, I think that's, that is a, a big thing is that when we look at – and not just Old Testament, but I think it's even with the New Testament, how when people look at those things, they don't recognize that there is a cultural background that goes along with everything that we're that we're reading. And that is why, like you said earlier, about how we can misconstrue or misunderstand the Bible enormously mm -hmm. if we don't we don't have that background, man. And the Old Testament dude is super, super cool to me, you know, that's why I'm going into it. But yes. I know uh, for others, dude, it's very, very difficult. It's it's a very hard book because um, I've been trying to teach my, I do a Bible study on Mondays, and I'm trying to teach them that they, we have to look at it in a historical context. We got to look at the, the genre it's written in. We got to look at uh, like uh, who's writing it. We've got to look at a lot of things and who they're writing to in order to understand it, man. And so how can, how can we understand the Old Testament a little bit easier because Genesis, yeah, that, that's cool because it's a story. But what about when we go? I'm doing a, another. Uh, I'm doing another podcast, and my buddy is like, "Let's do the minor prophets." I'm like, yeah. hey, why do you want to do one of the hardest? So how do how do we how can we understand the Bible a little bit easier, the Old Testament a little bit easier? Yeah, that's a great question too. Usually, where I start when it comes to understanding the Bible in general, Old Testament as well, is uh, well, there are a couple things. One is it's to recognize the distance, right? That there is a, there's a chronological, a geographical, there's a cultural distance between where we are and where Old Testament writers were. Lots of things have happened in that time. We live halfway, you know, here in the United States at least, we, we live halfway across the world from where they lived. Um, culturally, lots of things have happened. So there is some sense in which there is this distance, but I find it interesting that when Jesus talks to the disciples on the road to Emmaus mm -hmm. and he gets into the meaning of Scripture, right? So they're, they're saying, look, are you the only one who hasn't heard about what's going on in Jerusalem, right? We had this guy. We thought he's the one. He's dead. Now some women tell us that he's not dead anymore, right? Like he's not there anymore. His body's been taken. And Jesus opens the Scriptures and he shows them what the scriptures say about the Messiah. But he rebukes them first. He says, you know, you are slow to believe. Mm. And he doesn't say, I can't believe you don't know the historical background. 
<laughs> right? He doesn't say, don't you know that ancient Near Eastern writings had a certain treaty form that they used, and if you knew that better, you could have understood Deuteronomy in order to know that this is talking about me. He gets at where I think the real distance or, or the most important distance is, which is often a moral one. Mm -hmm. It's a question of faith. And I know in many ways for those who, you know, you're a believing Christian and you still have a hard time reading the Old Testament, that may not be that reassuring. But my point is that I, I think that's, the f that's where we have to start, right, mm -hmm. is with a proper orientation, proper attitude towards the Old Testament. And if we start there, I think God honors that. Now, what's the attitude you would say is just be faith, believing faith? Believing, submitting faith. That's exactly right. That this is God's Word and that what it says is true and that it has, it, it's the one that speaks with an authoritative voice. Mm -hmm. And so if your obje object or objective is to submit yourself to it, I think God honors that. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing is, and I often uh, say this as well to especially in my hermeneutics classes, um, in my Bible interpretation, I see that, you know, there are oftentimes when writers communicate, there are a number of ideas and thoughts and vocabulary that the writer or the speaker shares with the reader or the listener. And we could call this the presupposition pool, right? There are all these common ideas that we hold together. And oftentimes when we think of the biblical writers and ourselves, we think that there's this large body of presuppositions that they held that maybe we don't hold anymore. So we kind of have to swim in their pool, if you will, mm -hmm. <laughs> to play on pool. Yeah. So anyway, um, <laughs> the presupposition pool. Um, but I really think that there are two primary things um, that. Old Testament writers assume of their, their readers. Um, one is that that those who read it are from earth. <laughs> right? And what I mean by that, what I mean by that is they assume kind of common human knowledge. Mm -hmm. Right? That, uh, I mean, if you did come from Mars and you read a lot of the Bible, you'd be like, what's this plant stuff, right? Or what are we talking about? Water or whatever else. It would be very strange. Um, they assume a lot what's common human knowledge, common human understanding, common human experience. And so, uh, unfortunately, we are sometimes at a disadvantage because our experience is not actually common human experience, right? Mm -hmm. Like we wake up to an alarm clock. Well... Within yeah. human experience, that's actually a pretty recent development. Yeah, um, that's right. You know, yeah. we live in cities where, you know, you may have never seen the stars in the sky yeah. at night. and But for the vast majority of human experience, that's what they know. Yeah. And so I think kind of having a, a sense that our context is not universal but having a sense of what kind of common human experience would be, I think that's helpful. Um, and then the second thing I would say is biblical authors assumed that you would read the Bible. And what I mean by that is so often biblical books will build on previous biblical books. Mm -hmm. And just to use an example, sometimes this happens within the same biblical author, for instance, Exodus will build on Genesis, you know, make allusions to Genesis, mm -hmm. or Joshua will refer back to the Pentateuch, to Deuteronomy. Um, one example that I'm thinking of is <clears throat> when you look at Jeremiah, Jeremiah is talking about um, the destruction of the land that will come with the Babylonians in the exile. And he says that the land will become an empty wasteland. And he actually uses the same phrase that occurs in Genesis 1, 2. Mm. And the land was, uh, in Hebrew, it's tohu vavohu. It's, uh, mm. It was an empty wasteland. And I think what Jeremiah is alluding to, it's this kind of point back to Genesis 1, that in many ways what the exile will bring is an uncreation. 
that the work that God does in preparing the land for people to live in it, to have Adam and Eve there in a luscious garden that has everything that they need, which is the same thing that he does for Israel, right? He, yeah. he prepares the land, they come into the land, they don't build the houses, they don't even plant any of the vineyards or the orchards, they just move in. <laughs> it's like it's been specially prepared just for them. And with the exile, what happens is that work is undone. It's an uncreation of God's good work. So, so I think if you know, you kind of keep those two big things in mind. That is that what I usually call some sense of historical awareness. That the way things are now are not always the way things have been. Um, at one point, I I used to teach eighth graders and. I was talking. Yeah, I taught them second year Latin, if that, oh, which made it so much better, right? It was, it was the easiest job I've ever had. Um, convincing them that they didn't want to hang out at the mall, that they really wanted to spend time learning Latin. Yeah, that that yeah. That, that, that seems like a a major leap to say that was easy. Yeah, yeah, it was an easy sell, really easy sell. Um, but I remember having a conversation uh, with one of the students and. Uh, we were talking about, I don't know, you know, when I was younger or something like that. And I said, well, back then they didn't have cell phones. And she went, what? Why didn't they have cell phones? She said, were they too stupid to make cell phones? And I was like, okay, here we go. This is what I mean by a lack of historical awareness, right? Like the idea that the way the world is right now is the way that it has always been. That's not helpful when reading the Bible, right? You have to know that the world has changed some over the years. So Too stupid to make cell phones. Yeah, too stupid to make cell phones. Why didn't they have cell phones, Oh man, that's incredible, dude! Yeah, so that is um, um, that is good though. That building upon things. I have a, a small question, and it's more technically because because I, I know a little bit. I don't want to say I know more about the Bible than the listeners, but um, I just know that by taking your classes and studying the Bible, that yeah. the Old Testament isn't written or it's written, but it's not cataloged in the same order as uh, the Christian Bible. So the, the Hebrew Bible is cataloged differently. So will that, does that make a difference in, in the uh, referring back to and how they build on each other? Does it make it easier or harder or, or, or what is that? Because I know some of the books are different. Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in fact, there's not like one standard um one-size-fits-all arrangement of uh, even within the Hebrew tradition. Mm. Um, but there are, there are some larger categories that are true. Um, so, for instance, within the Hebrew tradition, you have, instead of thinking of a fourfold Bible or Old Testament where you have law and then history and poetry and prophecy, you, you do have a threefold understanding of the Old Testament where you have the law, the prophets, which include Joshua through Kings, and then the writings, um, which is more or less everything else. And the, the arrangements tend to be very stable when it comes to the law. Uh, actually, it's incredibly stable. And when it comes to the prophets um, running Joshua through what we would call the minor prophets, that's, that's pretty stable. Um, the writings is where you have more variety. Um, but it does seem that some of the arrangements really are put together in order to help see connections between books. Right? Mm-hmm. So some of the arrangements, for instance, will have Proverbs followed by the book of Ruth. And Proverbs 31 has this little question, right? Yeah, a virtuous woman or a competent wife, who can find? And and that little phrase there, this kind of woman, it shows up prominently in Ruth, where Boaz stands and, you know, basically says says that she is the the virtuous woman. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. He's Uh, standing there in the gates of the city among all the elders and says the exact same thing, which is the picture that's described in Proverbs 31. So the fact that you read them close together probably does help recognize them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there are some that seem to be kind of arranged with that Mm. in mind. 
Uh, I wish they would do some of that in the, uh, uh, I'm about to say the American Bible, but I mean the Christian yeah. <laughs> Bible. Oh, there's my Americanism coming off. Because uh, I think it does. Because I, I actually did a study in Ruth uh, maybe about maybe about a month ago, two months ago, and I thought about that as I was reading some commentaries and stuff on it, and it was talking about how that is the picture. And in, in, in the Hebrew Bible, they're put together so that you can recognize that. Because mm-hmm. as a youngster, man, I never really recognized that Ruth was supposed to be that, that the yeah. picture that women should look to, you know, but uh, that, yeah. that's that's so cool. And think about that building on each other thing again and the idea that we're supposed to be reading the Bible mm-hmm. and then also not only just reading it, but like starting reading it by faith is, is uh, you said that with Emmaus and Jesus and Jesus talks about how, well, this is the Messiah in the Old Testament. And so I, I remember in class one time he said, it's not that we know that Jesus is the Messiah because he says he is, even though he did say he is and that is true. But it's because he like uh, uh, fulfills all of what the the Old Testament says that the Messiah would be, you know. So can you can you explain a little bit further, like, uh, and then after that, I'm gonna add a little additional. It's like, well, <laughs> how do we stop ourselves since we know that Jesus now, as a Christian, we, we realize that Jesus was um, the the fulfillment of all these laws. But how do we stop ourselves from saying every little aspect that is in the Bible in the Old Testament is Jesus? Yeah. That's a, that's, a, that's a very difficult and probably a very long question. No, no, no. It's a great question. And what, what I would say is uh, part of what I try to get at in my classes, I try to make a little bit of distinction. And I will say um, much of this, I probably should have said this earlier, but in, in many of my thoughts and the way that I read the Bible, a lot of this is, was influenced by my doctoral supervisor, who's John Salhammer. And uh, oh, so, wow. well, I'm gonna have to pause there because I think I'm yeah. supposed to be getting a book by uh, uh, Dr. Selhelmer uh, for Old Testament theology. Yes. So that's that's your uh, your doctor, huh? Wow, yes. that's amazing, man. I had to just say that because I just thought that's the book I have to write, and if I have to study in school, it's a good book, and you got to teach under him, so or yes. learn under him. That's that's amazing, man. Yeah. So it, when you read Selhelmer, you will hear some of this language as well, and and he's prompted a lot of my thoughts. Um, but one of the uh, when I think about Jesus and the Messiah, and the relationship between Old Testament and New Testament, often the way people will kind of frame the discussion is they will say, "Well, you have the Old Testament, you have the New. Jesus shows up on the scene, and when he does, it reorients the way that people read the Bible, and and you start to read the Old Testament in light of Jesus." Mm-hmm. And so kind of the Jesus sets the agenda for reading the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And what I like to do is in, in many is kind of flip that, right? And the way that I do it is by saying that it may be a better paradigm, a better way of looking at it. Not to think of the Old Testament as kind of the promise and then the New Testament as the fulfillment, right? And so mm-hmm. because a promise I mean, really, the meaning of a promise is how it's fulfilled. And you often don't know exactly what shape the promise will take until it is fulfilled. Mm-hmm. What I like, to, I like to use the idea of description and actualization. So the idea here is, and uh, to use the example, I often go to 1 Corinthians 15, and you find there... The description of Jesus as the one who subjects all things under his feet, mm-hmm. right? So he's the one who has victory over death and all of these things. And you say, okay, how do we know that? Well, is it by watching Jesus? And for Paul, that's not what he says, right? So he says, <clears throat> in the beginning of the chapter, You know, I have handed down to you that which I have taught, Mm -hmm. that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, right? It's all according to the Scriptures. And that even when he speaks of the coming of Christ, which I think is fascinating because he doesn't say the second coming, Mm -hmm. right? He says, in the coming of Christ, in the coming of Jesus, all things will be subject. Mm -hmm. And the point there is that Paul is not looking at the carpenter Jesus when he thinks about Jesus as the Messiah. He's thinking about King Jesus. 
He's thinking about ruler of all things. He's thinking about the one who puts all things under his feet, subjects all things under his feet. And if you want to know who that Messiah is, you don't you don't start. Yeah, you don't look at Jesus in Bethlehem, right? Yeah. You start in the Old Testament. So that's really the the idea. And I do say this sometimes, right? In part to provoke my students to think, I say, if you want to know who the Messiah is, don't start with the Gospel of John. Start with the Old Testament, mm-hmm. because that's where the portrait of the old uh, of the Messiah is really drawn out. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of it happens in because part of your question is, okay, so what do we do to avoid kind of seeing Jesus in everything, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't want to look at him and be like, oh, it's a lamb. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel like a kid, you know, where they're like, Jesus? <laughs> That's the answer to everything. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's the right Sunday school answer. doesn't matter what the question yeah. is. Right. But what's that little furry you know, thing with the yeah. eats uh, nuts, you know what I'm saying, and climbs up trees? <laughs> Jesus? <laughs> Sounds like a squirrel, but it must be Jesus, right? Um, yeah, that's exactly right. No. Well, part of it is that, and I think this is important, that when we look for the the notion and the description of the Messiah in the Old Testament, it's often not in the the small details within the text. It's actually in the larger structures of the text. So, uh, and again, Stanley points this out in Pentateuch's narrative. He looks at if you look at the first five books of the Bible. Right, so this is Genesis through Deuteronomy, often referred to as the Pentateuch or as the Law or the Book of Moses. But when you look at those first five books, there is a large structure that holds them all together. It's a pattern. You have narrative followed by poetic section followed by a small epilogue. And so... If you look in the book of Genesis, for instance, you have this long narrative section, and then it ends in chapter 49 with a poetry. This is the blessing of Jacob. He assembles his sons around him, and he gives them a blessing. And interestingly, he talks about what will happen in the last days. Um, Often translations will see the latter days or in the days to come, but... Uh, the Hebrew, uh, it's in the end of days, mm. which is, I think, an intentional counterpart to the beginning of Genesis, which is Bereshit, in the beginning. Exactly. Yeah. So you have in the beginning, here's the counterpart in the end. And what we find within the blessing is the description to Judah that there yeah. is this Except king. Yeah. Exactly. There's a ruler that is coming out of Judah, and that um, he is this one like a lion, that no one, you don't mess with a lion, right? You don't rouse the lion. And so you have this narrative, you have this poetry, and then chapter 50, you have the epilogue, right? Death of Joseph and the mourning, um, and the promise to uh, prepare him to, to bring him back into the land. Then you have this long narrative of the Exodus, Mm-hmm. And the journey out, and the, there's this poetic section that happens again with the the oracles of Balaam. Mm. He's got mm. all of Israel gathered in front of him. He pronounces this blessing, and he talks about what's going to happen in the last days. And there again, he refers to a king who will come, who will be greater than Agag, is um, how the Bible's or English Bible reads. And that this one is going to crush the head of Moab. He's going to to subdue his enemies. Um, And then he says, and this one uh, will be like the lion that no one will rouse. And then, really interesting, he says, those who bless him will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. Referring back to the Abrahamic promise. Yeah. And... There's this large structure, right? And then you move to the end of Deuteronomy. You have this long narrative, long legal section. You have mm-hmm. Moses, assembles all of Israel. He gives them a blessing, mm-hmm. and you have a mention of the last days. So this structure, this large structure of the whole law, has in these really important poetic sections 
the mention of one who is coming to rule. Not only that, but this one who is coming to rule, looking at Balaam's oracle, is from Judah. He's the lion that no one dares rouse. And he also is the one that fulfills the Abrahamic promise because those who bless will be mm -hmm. blessed and those who curse will be oh, cursed. Wow. And so it's not that I have to dig around in you know Genesis chapter 3 in order to find a tree and say, well, you've got the tree and then that's Jesus. Because really the big structures are already pointing to the Messiah. These yeah. really significant passages that are highlighted by the structure of these books are painting the picture of the Messiah for us. And I think if we follow those large patterns, and, and we see this in, in book after book after book, and, but if we follow these large patterns, I think we get a pretty good sense of yeah. who the Messiah is. Yeah. Man, that's dope, man. Yeah. That's, my mind blown. You know, I look like my gla eyes glazed over thinking about that stuff. Because that, that is uh, crazy just thinking about it. Because I do know like that one in Deuteronomy, it talks about that, that there is going to be this another Moses, like a prophet among you, that's going to come up and rise. You know, so mm -hmm. it's it's knowing those things, but then not recognizing it. You know, and just seeing yeah. that that's the overall structure that we should be looking at, and and understanding that man, that's 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 amazing. Yeah. yeah. One thing I'll say about that. This one of the things that for me really opened my eyes to the Old Testament was things that I knew, but I never connected together. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you think about. Adam, you think about Noah. Well, obviously, I mean, everybody knows about Adam. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows about Noah. Mm -hmm. But not too many people have thought about the relationship between Adam and Noah, right? That you have Adam and Eve, the Lord makes them, he blesses them, says, be fruitful and multiply. Mm -hmm. He then plants a garden for them, he sets them in that garden. Um, they are naked, but they're not, not ashamed. Mm hmm. But then, once they partake of the fruit of the tree, their nakedness is exposed, a curse is pronounced, yeah. and... The whole world's jacked up. Yeah. <laughs> and it's followed by a genealogy. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> the genealogy expands when it gets to the promised son, Shem. You look at Noah. Okay, well, what about Noah? So, Noah comes along. Uh, you have the flood. Following the flood, right, you have Noah. He's given a blessing. Mm -hmm. Blessing to be fruitful and multiply. It's yep. virtually the same. He plants a vineyard. He partakes of its fruit. His nakedness is exposed. Mm -hmm. A curse is pronounced. Yeah. <laughs> and it's followed by a genealogy that yeah. focuses on the chosen son. So there's this connection that's made between Adam and Noah. And not just recognizing the connection, but then also asking the question, okay, well, What's the point? Like, why, why mention that? Mm -hmm. Why end with a curse, right? In that's one part of the question. What I part of the way in which I answer that question is, I say, well, let's think about Adam and Eve. Innocent, right? Mm -hmm. They have no knowledge of good and bad, and they have no experience with sin. And you start with somebody innocent and. You start with an innocent human being, what do you end with? You end with a fall. Mm -hmm. Well, what if we started with the righteous one? Right? Because that's the difference. Noah is not innocent. Noah is actually righteous. Mm -hmm. yeah. What if we started with a righteous human being, where would we end? And the answer is, fall. we're in the same place. <laughs> right? Like, it, it's not enough to have a righteous human being, something beyond human. Mm. is required in order for us to get back to what we lost yeah. mm. in the in the creation itself. So yeah. man, that's some good stuff, man. That Something some like Jesus, stuff. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know <laughs> what I'm talking about, right? right. right. We yeah. the Messiah. We're talking about the Messiah. Yeah, yeah exactly. We're talking about practice, we talking about Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> man, I, I threw I, I want to go back to something you said earlier too, which was uh, really impressed upon me, is when he we were talking about Jesus and the reason, or Paul, and the reason that he knows these things about Jesus when he says, like, all these things will be submitted under his feet. And then the reason that even now that we've got, like, uh, Revelation and all these things talking about the future that's to come and all that is because they were basing all of that stuff on what the Old Testament had prophesied about the Messiah. I don't yeah. think I ever hit that. You know, some of those things, obviously, it's because an angel spoke with them and said these direct things. Mm -hmm. But 
that wasn't so with with Paul and with James and, and Peter and, and how they talked about the end when it says that the uh, like the, the heavens and the earth will burn away or everything will be shaken mm-hmm. and, and all that stuff came from them reading and understanding the Old Testament. You know, yeah. so that's that 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 really shines a light to my eye to to think about how the Old Testament influenced so much of what the um, the uh, New Testament writers mm-hmm. were writing about. Yeah, and it also means that we, in many ways, are in the same position as the Old Testament uh, saints, believers, mm-hmm. in the sense that, you know, often we think of the Old Testament, well, people in the Old Testament, were they were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And I think Paul's point is, so are we, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, we do, and this is actually how Paul puts it, right? He says, for those who wait for his coming, not his coming back, mm-hmm. not his coming again, but for his coming. And I think that in some ways also helps kind of bridge that gap. You know, the Old Testament seems so foreign and different, and we're just in a different spot. But in some ways that's true. But in other ways, we're waiting for the same thing that they were. Yeah. We're waiting for coming his coming. Exactly. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. So uh, another question I want to ask, because uh, this is still in line with all that stuff, but it's a bit different because a lot what we've been talking about here a whole lot has been the unity of the Old Testament and the New. But I know that there is some disunity because whenever we read the Old Testament, a lot of times, like I actually got a chance to witness to my, my brother-in-law and Ooh, my heart was just like, but but I did it. I I went over my head about seventeen times, having to say, okay, this is how I'm gonna start the conversation. This is how I'm gonna start. Mm. But anyway, uh, uh, God allowed me to do it by His strength. But in that conversation, when we talked about, He was talking about some of the things that Christians say that we can and can't do, you know. And then mm. He was like, oh, so what about you wearing a a, a shirt with two different sets of fibers? You know, I'm like, I understand that, you know. And so, how do we as Christians now recognize like what is it? about the Old Testament laws compared to the New Testament laws. Like and I know this it's like what do we what are we what are we allowed to do? I don't want to use it like this, you know, because right. it makes it all legal legalist, but I do want to know like why do we say as Christians that um we do not have to uh, uh wear clothes of mixed fibers or, or I can eat some good old shrimp and yeah. some catfish, you know, <laughs> and some bacon, you know, cuz we all love bacon. So why is it that that is the way it is now as as compared to what it was like in the Old Testament. Yeah. Well, one of the points that, and again, I'm, I'm following Sailhammer on this, uh, but one of the points that he makes, which I think is really helpful, is that the law, when you look at the law uh, and all of the legal stipulations, that that law was specifically given to Israel to the sons of Israel in particular, and especially as they prepare to enter into the land. Mm -hmm. So it was a national covenant that governed, or I don't don't actually like the word govern, it regulated the relationship between the Lord and national Israel, right? So, which I think is important. It's important to point that out because, you know, I think in my relationship with my wife, at one point, my relationship with my wife was one that was regulated by, you know, basically, I related to her legally the same way that I related to any other person. Mm -hmm. But then, at one point, and we had a relationship, and we developed that relationship, and then, at one point, we decided that we would become married and that the legal parameters of our relationship would change. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not that our relation it's not that we instituted a relationship at that point, right? But the legal parameters changed. Um, and that that marriage then, that commitment, that covenant um, regulated the way in which our relationship, the, the parameters of our relationship, right? How it would work. And I think that's off, also helpful to think about in terms of the Lord's relationship with Israel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't find the Old Testament kind of condemning the other nations because they didn't listen to Moses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
right? Or or they didn't they didn't follow that law. Yeah, that law. You find him condemning them for injustice, for violence, for oppression, for even, for worshiping other gods, for practicing useless divination, and all other kinds of things, but not specifically going back to the law of Moses. Yeah, and I think that's part of what's happening in the New Testament, where you know Paul can say, "Look, I'm circumcised." Okay, that's fine. He even takes a vow, right? He takes a vow as he would being a Jewish person. Mm -hmm. But when you take a Gentile who's not under law and you put them under law, Paul gets upset. Yeah, gets <laughs> he, start, he, he starts, <laughs> uh, his language changes. And uh, yeah, that's a real problem. <clears throat> and so I think uh, part of what's going on is in some sense a, it's a it's a category error. It's the idea that the law was intended for all people at all times. Mm, okay. And uh, my initials, uh, I'm Joshua. My middle initial is E. Williams. <laughs> so I'm J E W. Yeah. But I am a Gentile, right? So I'm a Gentile J E W. Um, wow, you're both, huh? And so, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so in that sense, I'm not under the law as law, right? So, and to me, that's, I think, important to recognize that the law was not given to all nations as law. So then, you know, natural question is, okay, so how does it function? Well, it functioned within, within the Pentateuch, within the book of Moses. It's already functioning as kind of like wisdom, the way that wisdom literature does, right? It gives us a picture of what is right and wrong in a particular context for God's special people living in that pagan culture. Now, this does raise a problem, right? It's like, okay, so if the law is not, in, if it's only intended for Israel, mm -hmm. and kind of ancient Israel as a nation in that context, well then, woohoo, right? We can do whatever we want. But, and I think Paul really gets at this in Galatians, right? Because this is part of the question that Paul is wrestling with, with the Galatians and the Galatian churches, is, <clears throat> okay, um, we don't have to follow the law. Well, then how do we know what to, to do? Yeah. <laughs> right? And Paul brings it to the flesh and to the spirit. So walking in the spirit produces life. Walking in the flesh produces death. And then he makes a what to me is a very interesting statement. He says the deeds or the acts, right? The, the deeds of the flesh are evident <laughs> i was gonna say because that that really to me that gets it's like the deeds of the flesh are evident. It's like he's saying it's obvious you already know what those things are you already man. know what this is <laughs> i mean i'm gonna give you some examples but come on now yeah. you already know what this yeah. is it's like it's easy like you know how easy it, you know you know what those things are right and then, then he goes on to say but the deeds of the or the fruit of the, the spirit of the spirit is this right and so this is how we're supposed to act like to make it known as to the, the, the good things that are supposed to pr be produced in us. Yes, and interestingly, right, the deeds of the flesh, those are activities. Mm -hmm. That's like stuff you do. But the fruit of the Spirit is about character. Yeah. Because yeah. if you act in true, right, properly defined love and faith mm. and peace and joy yeah. and self-control, Man, people don't write laws against that stuff, <laughs> right? Like, I, and I think that's part of his point. Look, if you walk in the Spirit and you evidence this kind of character, if we understand that properly defined, then you don't have to worry about law yeah. because you don't write laws against peace. You don't write laws <laughs> against patience, right? You don't about write laws kindness, against those uh, Yeah, I can't believe gentleness. <laughs> <laughs> Thou shalt not be gentle. Uh, right? yeah. You shouldn't control yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Man, that, that, that does. I have been thinking about that a lot because, uh, consequently, I did a, a study on Galatians uh, maybe about two, two, three months ago. Man, and one of those things that came up was my he, just that that word. The deeds of the flesh are evident, 
And it's like, it's like you already know those things. Mm-hmm. And then being in a class I did uh, on, on morality, and it talked about virtue ethics a little bit. And mm-hmm. I thought that what the law was intended to do was to create in us good character, like good goodness, creating us, uh, even though those are actions that are like leading to that. But that's why Jesus, when he says that uh, a lot of people actually want to say that, that uh, he made the law harder, but really he was just trying to tell us what the law was intended to do was intended for us not even to hate anybody but to love but we'd say well as long as i don't kill nobody mm-hmm. but it didn't produce in us love for our neighbor you know yeah so that's that's uh what that's that's some good stuff man it got me got me caught on it just I'm, you just confirming in me the goodness yeah. that i've been doing god's been working on me good man. Amen. Good. <laughs> i appreciate that man yeah so um so we talked about uh uh just trying to understanding the the old testament law and how it's different from us today. And then we also talked about just how uh, Paul, Peter, and all them used the Old Testament in that way. So how would you how would you say that the new that the 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 New Testament writers understood the Old Testament? Yeah. So how would you say that? And then like uh, and the way they understood it should be the way that we understood it, mm-hmm. correct? So how, how would you say that they would would look at the law now if they were alive today and people were talking about the Old Testament? What would you what would you say that they would say about it? Yeah, it's their Bible. I mean, and that's re- that really is the truth, right? So I, I made a s- small joke earlier that Jesus is Bible, yeah, right? Yeah, what's the Old we, Testament? What, what is the Bible of Jesus? And you think, oh, that's the New Testament because that's the Christian Bible. But wait, <laughs> but that's not the Bible that Jesus. <laughs> it wasn't written yet. Right? <laughs> exactly, it wasn't written yet. So Jesus's Bible, you know, if he were going to Sunday school, he'd be carrying his little Bible. There would would be the Old Testament and. You know, when Paul speaks about all Scripture, it's mm-hmm. inspired, and it is profitable. Yeah. He's talking about the Old Testament. The Old Testament. Right? Yeah. Every bit of it. And so, um, yeah, I mean, the way they viewed it, certainly the Old Testament was not a kind of a second-class citizen, mm-hmm. you know, a second-class member in the Bible. <laughs> it, it was their Bible, and the New Testament is a growth out of that mm-hmm. based upon, you know, the changes in the historical circumstances. For them, it is, it's the it's the Bible. And I think you see this even, you know, as you start thinking the development of Christian doctrine in the early church, um, the rule of faith or in the analogy of faith, however you want to call it, uh, the regular fide, that in many ways, this is just a summary of, a lot of the Old Testament, mm-hmm. right? Like, who is God? Well, let's start all the way back and let's just read through Scripture and see what Scripture affirms again and again mm-hmm. and again and again about who God is. And things that kind of lie outside of that little summary, kind of the, you know, the pocket version, if you will, of the Bible, well, then those things, we can't affirm them. Right, mm-hmm. like that—that's outside the bounds, and it's not that they developed something, and then said, "Well, let's see if we can make this work on the Bible." Yeah, yeah. it really is. It's coming from their understanding of the Bible, and a lot of it from the Old Testament. Right, like when they're thinking about Christology and who is Jesus, so much of what defines who Jesus is is the Old Testament, mm-hmm. right? They've got to reconcile this picture, uh, these affirmations in the new with this picture in the old. And that constant uh, refining and wrestling with those questions, I mean, with that, again, without the Old Testament, what you get is something very different, something that uh, is... Uh, well, that's where so many of these early yeah, these heresies, the heresies come, from. come from. Yeah, yeah. man, I appreciate your your, your time, man. Uh, talking with me about the Old Testament and its goodness and its awesomeness, man, because it is good and awesome, man. Yes, and it is. I I really enjoyed. Uh, I remember one time you told me if I want to understand the mind frame of the of the Hebrews back then, is that I just need to be reading the the uh, Torah the the uh, book of Moses and so I've been reading that and just trying to increase my understanding and now I have a little bit more since now I can see some of those big arches that you was mm-hmm. talking about so when I read it I'll be able to look at those and I appreciate that man but I do have one more question I want to ask you because I want to uh, ask you this question when you leave I want to say well, well what can bridge the gap like 
What can we take from the Old Testament that we need to understand and know to live in our culture today? To say that mm. because we read the Old Testament, this is how we can understand our world and how we can view the world, have a worldview as a Christian today. Yeah, I think the most important thing to keep in mind, and this goes back to the things that I've said, is to recognize that it's one, one God, one story from start to end. Right, that even though you see changes in historical circumstances, uh, which does lead to kind of outward changes in, uh, I'm thinking of Chronicles in particular. So, when you read through Chronicles, uh, there are passages in which it talks about obeying the law of Moses, mm-hmm. and it's referring to the priests being at the temple in Jerusalem. Well, the law of Moses doesn't know anything about the temple, right? It knows about the tabernacle, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't know about the temple. And yet, Chronicles is saying when they are at the temple, they are fulfilling the law of Moses. Mm. And the reason it can say that is because this one story, this one line that's running through the same God, same relationship, they can say it because that same thing is embodied. It's just embodied in two different means, right? So mm-hmm. on the basis of the changing historical circumstances, it means that the outward expression of this eternal truth, this eternal God, this eternal relationship, the outward expression changes. But the same truth that the Lord is God, that He is Israel's God, that they are His people, right? That uh, uh, His love and affection for His people, that remains the same from start to finish. Yeah. So we can say that He's still the God of, of, of Israel, but the God of the church, and that His affections for us as believers is the same as it was in the Old Testament. Man. Yeah. Awesome, man. I appreciate you so much, man. And uh, I don't know if you have any places where people can like get a hold of you or learn more about you or if, or if, if they want to check out some of your writings or anything like that. If you have anything, uh, just uh, I guess you can say, I don't know if you do Twitter or anything like that. Uh, I am on Twitter, although I tweet very, very, <laughs> very little. Very little. Very, very little. Very infrequently. <laughs> very infrequently. Uh, and I have a little blog post, uh, Joshua E. Williams, uh, WordPress com that I post on every once in a while. And, you know, you're welcome to look at the faculty page at Southwestern Seminary, Swibitz, S-W-B-T-S dot E-D-U. Swibitz, yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's how I came to school. They were like, you got to say Swibitz. I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Now I feel cool. You know, I'm an yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, we appreciate you so much, man. Thank you so much again for, for checking out Christ and Culture. And uh, we'll see you guys on the next podcast. Wow. Wow.